Hi, you're listening to Yellow Glitter, a podcast on mindfulness through the eyes and soul of a gay Asian. I'm your host, Stephen Wakabayashi, and you're listening to a very special episode for this month of February on love, queer Asian love. I'm joined on this episode with Jonathan Gibbs, aka Blasian FMA. Hi. Hi, it's me. Yay. Hi. <laughs> Jonathan Gibbs, he, him, his, also known as Blasian FMA Online, is a content creator, podcaster, activist, serial panelist, and bubble tea enthusiast. His work in activism began with his YouTube channel, Blasian FMA, in 2008, in which he worked to bring awareness to the multiracial issues surrounding the intersection of Black and Asian identity. He later enjoyed a 60-episode run of his first podcast, Education, which covered QPOC issues from the point of view from people all around the United States. He is now working on a newly launched podcast, This QPOC Life, which is a spiritual successor to the Education series, reimagined and ever-evolving to be more sensitive to all marginalized communities. Wow. That was hey, a long intro. What a readout. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's your research. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, research. So I have to ask you first, what inspired your name, Blasian FMA? That's a really good question, and I get it all the time. Uh, it's really funny because when I think about it, it's literally this. I was... A part so the FMA stands for Phi Mu Alpha. Doesn't stand for Full Metal mm. Alchemist. I've never <laughs> seen that anime. That's what I thought. A lot of people thought that they think that, and it's like no, it's not that. But um, uh, so I I was the so the fraternity that I'm in, which is Phi Mu Alpha, it's a music fraternity, and one of the events that we all the chapters across the U.S. do is called the Mills Music Mission. Uh, the Mills is our founder back in 1898 in Harvard. Um, and anyway, because it's named after it's named after him. It's like the big thing that all the fraternities do. And we go around and sing for like old people in nursing homes or like kids in hospitals. Uh, so we do a lot of singing. So I being the tech guru of the group um, <laughs> would bring my little power shot um with me and i just realized i still have that camera i'm looking at it right now on my uh, <laughs> on my thing um i would record the mills music missions and so i needed mm. somewhere to share the videos and this was before i think it was, well, it was before i knew google drive but it was while youtube when youtube was still a thing, or it was just becoming a thing right and so i stored all of the videos on youtube and i needed to create a channel name mm-hmm. and i was just like well, I'm Blasian and I'm in Five Me Alpha, so Blasian FMA. <laughs> did you so did you ever think about changing it when you weren't in Five Me Alpha? Well, before I mean, really, it was the reason I created a YouTube. And it really wasn't going to be for anything else until I somehow, I guess because I was watching the videos or something. Then I started seeing, I don't know if there were recommended videos or related videos back then, but YouTube was a really small and niche thing back then. So somehow I found out about the very first round of content creators, Mm. uh, people who would talk to the camera. This was a foreign concept back in the early 2000s or in 2008, I should say. It was still a foreign concept in the early days of YouTube. So um, I discovered vloggers, and then I was like, huh, I like this one and this one and this one. And then eventually I was like, I should do it. Uh-huh. And so I started doing it. But the origins of the channel were to house fraternity uh, recordings. Mm, so interesting. Throwback to YouTube back in the day when there was actually a lot of cat videos. <laughs> oh, gosh, cat videos. And um, just like before things went viral and before <laughs> yeah. like – before everything became so corporatized and before um, everybody could do it because uh, phones didn't have HD cameras on them yet and a DSLR was out of the range of everybody and we all had to use like our laptop uh, cameras or <laughs> Canon PowerShot yes. video features. <laughs> yeah, walk around everywhere with a Canon, you know. You have your Canon and maybe a flip phone and... <laughs> Oh God, I would, I don't, I never saw anybody use the flip phone for content. That would be just a little much, but, um, 
but no, that was it was quite a time, and we've grown up since then. And now it's a whole new wave of content creators, and uh, you know, some of the people that I started out with have grown to become celebrities, <laughs> or at least uh, online celebrities. It's so funny how people can have millions and millions of followers, and people still not know who they are unless you're in that bubble, right? But then others have retired and they they keep to their own opinions on their various other social media that are available. Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. And so since we first linked up where you had me go on your podcast to talk about Queer Eye, I had an opportunity to kind of look at all the stuff you do. You know, you mentioned like YouTube, but also some of your film stuff, your podcasts on uh, queer issues. And so I just want to ask, what inspired you to continue doing this? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I don't know exactly. And as I was listening to you read that bio, um, you know, it, it kind of made me wonder, like, when did I get into activism? Because really, my whole thing was making people aware of who I am and like that I exist and that people like me exist. But then I guess just by virtue of pushing for my own issues, the type of person that I am, I'm like, well, these people over here are struggling too. Or like, I think it was that I started hanging out and I put that in air quotes because it's digital, right? But um, I started hanging in these circles of people that were more socially aware, um, that were uh, as loaded as the term is social justice warriors of the day. And um, I kind of just fell into that camp and then started realizing like, yeah, it's not okay to say this. And yeah, you need to grow and we need to understand these issues. And yeah, you know, this is wrong. And this is, you know, it's, if you care about inclusion, then you should uh, look into this and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, all the while uh, coming up with different content creators that all have their own thing that they are very fiery and passionate about and watching their videos and saying, oh, wow, I didn't know about this before I watched your video. So mm-hmm. I guess that's it. It's just I grew into it because yeah. of the people that I came up around. Mm, yeah. And right now is a. Uh there's so many ideas and a lot of people are so polarized and I'm just curious, do you find that your activism has increased or do you think it has decreased over time? Mm, I would say with time, it's only increased. Uh, we're on the, it's an election year and it's very important that, um, you know, I use my podcast, which is growing, uh, today, um, f- to keep people informed and, you know, it's it's a podcast by and for queer people of color, and that includes all people in the LGBTQ spectrum. And I just feel like it's a sense of duty when you when you start getting emails or private messages or DMs on Instagram saying thank you for this, thank you for talking about this particular thing, thanks for that episode, or I listened to this on my commute and it really. Uh, fired me up for the rest of the day, or I'm going to do this because I listened to the episode. Any kind, any one of those things, you know, it, it keeps you going and it makes you realize like not everybody is comfortable doing what it is that you like to do. And yeah. so keep on doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a keep on going, you know? Um, so breaking down your username again, the first part is Blasian, right? And so you are biracial, half black, half Asian. And I just wanted to know a little bit kind of what was it like growing up being biracial, black and Asian? I probably should have explained that when I was talking about the name, right? Thanks for Mm -hmm. guiding it back to there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, So um, yeah, I'm Blasian, black, Asian. I'm half black, half Filipino. Uh, And what it was like growing up. Hmm. So my life is if you look, if you really like, it, it's it's not important for anybody else to look, but I, I look, and so I'm here to tell you what I see. It's very strange in that it is super down the middle. So a minor in the United States, you know, you're until you're 18, you're not an adult. So for nine years of my life, the first nine years, I lived with my mom. So it's a very Filipino, like Lola, that's grandmother in Tagalog, like lived in the house. You know, all of the things that 
you, that would encompass a quote Asian upbringing. Mm-hmm. And then when I turned nine, I moved in with my dad. So black side of my family yeah. got to stay out until 10 p.m. No, like <laughs> just leave a note. Um, really? Let me know where you are. I had no yeah, idea. Like, so, and then like, and then like, uh, he, my dad. Uh, it's funny. He's he's a great parent, but he has his own hurdles that he has to deal with. And but I just remember when I moved in with him, he would do things to try to make me. Um, learn about my blackness so like making me watch the movie the color purple it's it's funny because like the things that he consciously it was like clear that he consciously tried to do i didn't really gravitate towards but living in his house and listening to the music that he listened to like james brown and patty labelle and all of that that's the stuff that i really gravitated toward and it wasn't like he was doing that on purpose it was just his thing ultimately you know this was in southern california but somewhere down the line around 13 I moved to Mississippi with him because he was tired of California. You know, down there, or and especially back in like 1998, 99, every, and in the South, everything was just black and white. It was just that. There were barely any uh, Latinx people in Mississippi yet. They started coming in more around, or at least being more visible. And no Asians uh, in that, too. In, yeah. Oh, and very little Asians. Yeah. But like at that point... I knew I was Filipino, but there was nothing that I did that was like expressively Filipino. It was just, he's that mixed boy. And so people thought maybe I was mixed with uh, Latino or something. Um, they just knew me that I was light skin and mixed. And so I say all of that to say that, like when you ask me what it was like growing up Blasian, it's just like, I was Asian at one point and then I was black at another point. It's, mm-hmm. But I, you know, I had a lot of groups mm-hmm. uh, or I had the oldest group on Facebook for Belasians. And we talk about this kind of thing all the time. And it's always interesting to see other people talk about their upbringings and how it was such a mixed cultural home and all this stuff. That's not my experience. My experience is like binary one and then move over to the other binary. It was just so strange, you know, Catholic church first nine years of my life, uh, and then all of a sudden, getting thrust into black Pentecostal, running around the church screaming, falling out wow. type church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very polar opposite uh, yeah. <laughs> upbringing. And so it's just truly the definition of intersectionality is yeah. my existence. So yeah. I'll write a book one day. <laughs> do it. I'll read it. I'm just curious, just how do you know both sides of you, how do the Asian community respond to you being Blasian, and how does the Black community respond to you being Blasian? It's a very, very, very uh, complicated topic for the Black side. So I'm going to start with the Filipino side yeah. first. Yeah. Um, you know, Filipinos, I'll tell them that I'm Filipino, and they'll be like, oh, wow, yeah, I can kind of see it in your face. Yeah, because they're like happy about it. Um, I guess they're just happy that like this cool person to them is them. Um, I don't know how serious it needs to get. Um, I don't know that. I do know that like Filipinos in the Philippines are like super obsessed with the idea of purity and like being quote pure Filipino. Um, But it's definitely not a realm that I would ever find myself navigating because I'm already mixed. So like they fight amongst themselves as Filipinos being like, well, you have more Hispanic blood in you because they were colonized by the Spanish, of course. So like I've seen these, uh, arguments happen online. So I like, I can't even touch it with a stick because I'm already half and half. So like, I'm not going to fight to be Filipino on the other side. It's like, I'm like, I get completely accepted into the black community to the point where it's almost like don't ask, don't tell, which I'm not comfortable with because as soon as I, uh, this is a um, conversation that comes up with Blasians a lot. Um, You know, as soon as we start to acknowledge our other part of our heritage, then all of a sudden we're viewed as a race traitor or we think we're too good to just be black. Or when we say I'm more than black, then all of a sudden it means, oh, so we're less than. It's like, no, but why don't why don't you understand that? Like I have this other heritage. And I think that the problem lies as I um, look more and more into it and, and read things. Um, you know, there's a very complicated history with biracial black and white people in which black white people who are passing as white, or at least think they're passing as white, try to run from blackness in order not to face the same oppression that black people do. And because 
the world views some Asian people as trying to align with whiteness, thanks to that awful model minority myth, which some Asians like to play into. There's a kind of vitriol there as well. And I understand why people would look at some people and say, oh, you're saying you're mixed or you're really leaning into your mixed heritage because you don't like being black. And that's not the case. So, so what it's a is, lot. Yeah. So for our listeners, what is the model minority myth? If somebody is not familiar. Oh, okay. Well, the model minority myth, um, I like to say it's just a very good divide and conquer tactic among the majority white supremacist um, racist system that is the United States of America. That's not to say everybody's racist. I'm just talking about institutionalized racism and how, um, you know, it's the way it's set up, the way it works. So the way you keep control over a people is to divide and conquer. And if I, if you can make one group of folks believe, oh, well, why can't you be like them? Because they're so good. Yeah. You're the bad type mm-hmm. talking to the black yeah. people of the Asian folks. Oh, they're so rich. Yeah. Oh, they, they get along. They, they are obedient. I'm, it's like, it's a myth because, you know, in eight, late 1800s, y'all were excluding Chinese people and like dragging them through the streets and lynching them. Like you had the same amount of hate for Asians at one point that you do for everybody else that's not white. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, and I mean, look it up, the Chinese Exclusion Act and the LA Chinese Massacre. It's a Wikipedia article. You can look it up yourself. Um, so, you know, it, but at the same time, then you want to lift up Asians and be like, Oh, they're so good. They're so obedient. Like, why? Talk, looking at the black people, why can't you be like them? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, it, it does damage both ways, right? It, mm-hmm. it gives some people who play into it this false sense of superiority to other minorities, and then also it erases um, the fact that the Asian community, which first of all is already a broad term, but um, the Asian community has a plethora of different types of people, rich, poor, smart, dumb. Um, You know, it's not just one monolith as well that they try to paint it out to make others look worse. Yeah. It's it's somehow by being different or improving yourself, you're going to eradicate racism, right? The blame is almost put on you that you brought this upon yourself when in fact the racism exists because it's outside of you. It's the non-minorities that are causing the minor uh, the racism. Question: When did you realize you were different from everyone else when you identify as being queer? Oh, in regards to queerness. Yeah. Uh, gee. Um. <laughs> you know, it's weird. I've thought about this. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So there were like breadcrumbs, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie leading up to the point of struggle. Like there was definitely, there were definitely things that I did that were super gay or super queer of me, but I was just being me. And this is like when I was five years old, there, there was like, that's act one. That's like the, the prologue. But then there was a time of middle school and like hormones getting involved and me being like, well, this isn't right. Like, why do I get hot like in the locker room looking at these guys as we're all changing or like why do i get bothered when this guy on tv takes off his shirt or why do i feel like everybody's gonna look at me when there's a gay thing happening on tv so like super closeted and like super in denial about it for years until like college to the point where in college i was arguing against gay people about why being gay was wrong and yeah, I, it's like over the summer of, I think, my sophomore year, um, my school, we had like a online newspaper and, um, and uh, you know, something about homosexuality and then like the, the most flamboyant known gay person on campus made a comment and then I commented back um, and it was this long diatribe about like why it's wrong and why God says it's wrong and all this really? stuff. And um, wow. then they, the school took it and posted it in the newspaper, like took my comment without asking, but like Wait, as, in, as in like supporting the conservatives. Yes. Oh. Um, and that news and that news, like that newspaper circulated all around Mississippi. No. Um, it was in like the registrar's office of HBCUs. I went to his 
historically black college, mm-hmm. uh, by the way. Um, so like when I came out the following year, all the gays on campus were like, well, this is not a surprise, but also is a surprise. They were like, it's not a surprise because we knew you were gay, but it is surprising that you would come out because you last year wrote that horrible thing. And um, I don't know where that thing is now. Um, but, you know, and so that's the end of act two and then act three is just trying to live life and uh, and the present. But going back to act one, those breadcrumbs, you know, I was a little kid watching Sleeping Beauty and like, I don't, what, what was the name of that candy? That like, it was like uh, a glue stick, but it was candy and you could twist it and it would come out like a lipstick. I would, oh, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would sit on the couch and cross my leg and like, no, put it on like really? Then, the fact that, so the fact that when my mom would come out of her room into the living yeah, room, yeah. I would immediately stop doing that. I knew that it was quote wrong. Like oh, I didn't want to get caught doing that. Yeah. So it's really you? weird. I was five years old at that time, like four or five. I remember that. Um, and then there were like, yeah, there were other things that like happened that it's just really weird. And I don't know how like explicit we can get on this podcast, but I just remember like doing these sleepovers with friends cause it was a military family. So like, uh, cause my dad, so my mom really liked black guys, I guess. So, my parents divorced, but then my stepdad was a black guy as well, who was also in the military in San Diego. So we would have these, like, they had military friends and they, their friends had kids. And um, I would be sleep over at a lot of people's houses and the boys, like two boys off of the top of my head, I can remember them. And I, I wonder what they're doing to this day. But like, that we, like, I remember, <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> and like, we were both like, six years old so it wasn't anything like yeah yeah. we're both very young but i was laying lying in bed and like the boy grabbed my butt and i was like with both of his hand and squeezed as hard as he could and i'm like what the fuck (laughs) and then he's like no it's okay do it to me and like i grabbed his butt and squeezed it and it's just really weird um and another guy a boy i slept over six or seven years old and um like he slept at the head of his bed and I slept at the foot of his bed. So like his head was at where it would normally be. And then my head was where his feet would be. But then he would like put his feet in between my legs and like touch my junk with his feet. And then I would do the same to him. And I'm like, were we just being boys or was that some gay shit that we were doing back then? So what? You, lots of you don't know what they're girl. doing. You don't know where they are. <laughs> I have no idea. I know both of their names, but um, I have no way of knowing where they are today. Yeah, it's oh, fascinating. Well, what's your current status? Are you single, partnered, looking, not looking? Well, I'm single, and I don't know. I think I'm a. I am super jaded. Um, <laughs> I'm not like Whitney Houston. I don't believe yeah. in miracles, <laughs> and love is not a miracle oh. to me because. Oh. I've been single way too long. I've only had two yeah. relationships in my life. Yeah. And um, That's okay. and they were not even really relationships. They were both situationships. Um, because one completely cheated on me the entire time. And then the other one never gave me the title of it, despite the fact that we did like couple stuff and that lasted from like 2008 to 2014. So that's what it is. Yeah. And then kind of this episode is really just to talk about love and how we navigate love as queer Asian people. And I just wanted to kind of ask you, what has your experience been like navigating love as a biracial gay black Asian man? Yeah, you got all of it. Um, (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, when the world looks at me, they don't see an Asian man. They see a black. For instance, I take the two guys that I talked about. They were both black. Uh, the two situationships. Um, of course, I hook up with people, and uh, mainly Latinx people are attracted to me. I mean, these are just the stats. I'm not saying not. I'm not saying every Latinx. I'm just saying that in my experience, I've hooked up with a lot, lot of Latinx guys, and then black people are naturally attracted to me. But um, uh, Filipino guys are sometimes attracted to me, but. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to do it, but I mean, if you follow me on any social media, you'll see, I do drag the Asian community because y'all act like you don't like brown and black people. Yeah. 
and no, you know, uh, for me to be big thing, yeah. for me to be half of what y'all are, it's very difficult to look at a part of me and then not see the same level of interaction in the opposite direction. Uh, in preparing for this podcast, I tried to think of any of the, the like super gays on Instagram, especially Gaysians that um, you know are followed by a lot of people and like have a black boyfriend. I can only think of one. Shout out to you, um, Asian Maple Leaf in Canada, New yes, York, because yes, yes, he's yes. the only one with a black boyfriend, mm. and um, and and they show each other off proudly. Everybody else is white folks, or I mean, nobody ever. Uh, shits on people for dating their own. So I'm not going to be mad that Asian people that are Asian presenting only date Asian people that are Asian presenting. In, in my observation, and it's not my original, obs- like I'm not the one who originated this. I've actually had to do research myself. When Asians date outside of their race, then it's not with brown and black people. I'll say that much. So that really uh, tempers the lens through which I look at dating in the Asian community as as being part Asian. Yeah, and why do you think that is? Why do you think Asian people... Oh, anti-blackness, that's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, uh, anti-blackness, um, thinking that black is not beautiful or thinking brown is not beautiful. Colorism. It's, it's mm-hmm. prevalent in not only dating, quote, preferences, uh, but also in, you know, the fact that we carry... Or, you know, my own Lola goes outside and she doesn't want to get brown, so she carries a parasol around. Uh, India uh, has, uh, and a lot of Asia are like home to a multi-billion-dollar skin whitening um, industry. Fair and lovely is a thing. Um, different lotions with bleaching agents are a thing. Um, people want to be as light and white as possible. And when we talk about white supremacy and we say those words, we often think about American racism and we think about the Ku Klux Klan and we think about white people ruling. But what another component that falls under that quote, white supremacy is thinking that whiteness is supreme. Even if we're not talking about white American people or European people, we're talking about white skin or lightness or, you know, um, white features. So I don't possess those things. And um, so I'm not conventionally hot to specifically that group because I'm still hot as hell to a lot of people and I don't take them for granted at all, but it's very, very um, uh, disheartening to see uh, that this is the case with this particular community. Yeah. Yeah. And some people will say, you know, you try to address some of these things and they'll say, well, it's just my preference, right? They'll say, mm-hmm. well, whoever I love, I just love because it's just a preference, whether it's based on their body type or their ethnicity or skin color. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I I think that, uh, and I'm just regurgitating a lot of the things that have been discussed with a whole bunch of friends mm-hmm. over coffee or somewhere on the internet, but those preferences, or as I call them, preference gaze, yeah. um, you know, all of that is just rooted in the fact that one type of person and one type of presentation to be superior over others. So for instance, if you're going to say, Oh yeah, I like, I can like a black guy. Well then like, let's look at the black guys that you do like, are they all light skin? Are they all, do they all have six packs? Or do they have angular faces that have Eurocentric features? Because, you know, a lot of black guys have whiteness mixed in their bloodline due to the circumstances of their existence in the United States in the past. So um, talking about slavery, y'all. So, um, you know, it's just a thing like that's what I think uh, forms those preferences and feel convicted as you may. Um, I do a lot of thinking and a lot of uh, talking about this type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really fascinating because sometimes you have the people who claim to be super woke, right? And when you do try to talk about these things or address their dating history, right? So not just looking at the recent person they've dated, but collectively who they've been dating and seeing what trends show up in their dating history, it is very obvious what they're attracted to and what they're into, right? And... I think it's something worth exploring too because when we say I like, you know, oranges or I like apples, for example, 
I think we also have as much influence over what we like, right? And it's not all based on genetics. It's not all just based on these preconceived um, preferences that are that we're just born with, you know? It could also be due to generational issues, like you had mentioned. So I'm curious, what are your thoughts about dating apps? Dating apps are cool. Um, I know people who have met their, I should say, I know guys that have met their husbands on dating apps. It's, they're, they're good for what you, or they're, they're a way to find what you're looking for. If you're looking for a hookup, you might find it. They are a breeding, I mean, it's the internet. So you're still going to find trashy people and you're going to see the preference gaze and it's unfortunate. Um, and it, you're going to learn things about yourself, especially if you're a person of color, um, if you mind to think about it. Yeah. So, so what did you learn? Well, I mean, being, a, again, a, a brown person, I can and being like in my day job, I am an, uh, an analyst. So this is my brain. Like, this is how I got in this field, uh, by noticing trends and patterns and taking notes. And so with the dating apps, yeah, yeah. just like in my real life, if I see a trend, then I take note of it. And, uh, I take note of who doesn't respond, uh, because I'm equal opportunist. Don't get it, uh, make no mistake about it. And if I think that someone's hot, then I'm going to reach out to them if I feel like it. Um, and I know I, I take note of who doesn't respond. Yeah. Um, and I take note of who does respond. And I take note of who hits me up first. Yeah. The Cliff's Notes version of it is that if I find a white person attractive, yeah. if I find a white person attractive and I hit them up, most of the time they will not hit me back up. Yeah. Uh, if I find an Asian person yeah. that I find attractive, same thing as white they will not hit me back up um it's very much a stay in your quote own lane so because i'm black presenting if i do hit up a black person then they will definitely hit me back up and mainly black and latinx people hit me up uh first they i mean do they just not respond or do they say something to you that you're like oh that's interesting uh no just no response interesting interesting do they have like read status? I haven't used a dating apps in a while. Do they have like read? Grindr? If we're going to mention one in particular, Grinder does have a read status, but that's for if you pay for it. And I'm not about to pay for a Grinder. <laughs> I'm just not going to do it. Um, you know, uh, there's an uglier side to it. If white people do hit me up, then it's usually to objectify me. Or if Asian people do hit me up, then it's to objectify me uh, and ask what my penis size is, if I'm hung or not. And that's literally the first question that comes across. And I just don't respond to that because, you know, again, that's not what I'm, I mean, I might, I might be looking for a hookup, but I'm not looking to be your object. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that logic. People might say, well, you are on there for sex. So why, why do you think they wouldn't be asking that? But I go back to this one experience that I had with a guy that I was in the middle of having sex with. And like, he was writing me and I was like, I put my hands on his hips and he was like, uh, uh-uh, don't objectify me that way. And I was like, huh. you know what? He's right. Yeah. Yeah. Like if he doesn't want to be used as an object in that way, then I'm not going to do that. So for all of you all out there that are like, but it's grinder, of course, they're going to ask you if you're hung. I can draw the line where I want to draw the line. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is so, an NC-17 rated <laughs> podcast now. Yeah. Well, you know. We don't talk about the sex. <laughs> we did, and the penises. But let me ask you, so that racial objectification, this racial uh, fetishism, does it perpetuate past grinder, And does it appear in your real life as well i'm sure that i don't think it's ever happened in real life i don't really go to bars a lot i used to in new york but i'm not in the situation but i you know i'm sure it can happen um it's quite interesting when we talk about racial objectification and we think about the fact that i am half asian and the reason i'm on here is to talk about navigating this as a queer asian um that 
none of the queer Asian stereotypes apply to me because again, I am black presenting. So nobody thinks I'm going to be submissive. Nobody thinks that I'm a small twink. Um, you know, I, I don't, none of the Asian stereotypes fit me. And, and so it's not that I want them to, but it's just very interesting that how identity and stereotypes, they're like oil and water, at least for me, being someone that already goes against the grain of what the expectation is. Yeah. And why do you think people have these stereotypes, these racial stereotypes? To, to feed, to, to one, turn people into objects that become fetishes and uh, fulfill those desires. I believe it was on your podcast you uh, broke down the uh, etymology of the word fetish, and it goes back to sexual object. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, um, it's fascinating. If if you are the type of person who desires a toy, a small toy for your sexual desires, then you're going to view people, and in this case, Asians as your toy. I think there's a term for it, like China doll, right? I don't know if that's bad to say, but, um, you know, like that's the way people think. And on the uh, inverse or on the opposite end of that, you know, you want someone with a big dick, uh, you know, you're going to automatically think black guys when like, that's not the case <laughs> with every single black guy. Um, but you got people talking about BBC and um, and the fact that like, <laughs> it's so dumb to me, but like, I remember we're in the middle of this argument with this one gay who's not a person of color. And I think someone either uh, implied or accused them of not liking black people. And they're like, girl, I do like black people. I love me some BBC. And it's like, is that uh... where like, <laughs> that's your reaction? That's, that's your defense. Uh so <laughs> by having a, a racist world. stereotype i am not a racist <laughs> right that's worse than being like i have black friends so i can't hear it that's that's the next level of fuckery <laughs> what have, has that happened to you where someone's like i have black friends of course i'm not a racist look i'm friends oh, with jonathan I, yeah i mean we I, that's how do you respond just, to that Sometimes I just dismiss it or sometimes I'm like, that does not not make you racist. So or I should, that does not make you not racist. And then if I feel like doing the work and the labor, then I can be like, because you are playing into this uh, institutionalized, whatever, like, you know, it's a whole other subject. Yeah. Well, how do we demolish this institutionalized racism? Mm, Got to do the work. Because I think the easier question for the scope of this podcast is because you mentioned it earlier, you know, when you were talking about preferences. And um, I wanted to say that, like, you just have to literally do work to undo, not undo those preferences, but do work to widen your preferences. It, it's the work presents itself in different ways. It's like, you know, I have my own built in just trash ways of thinking. Uh, I am not immune to any of the things that I have. Uh, mentioned today. It's very interesting because sometimes doing the work, someone has told me like, I'm not going to be a martyr uh, for the cause. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a friend, he's a PhD student. He um, somewhere in the Northeast at a very reputable Ivy League university, a black person. And his stance right now is I will just not date white people. And I'm like, wow, that is interesting. And he can find white people attractive, but he is not going to contribute to the statistics of people at the PhD level that are people of color being with white people, because it is such a thing. Whenever either PhD level, which is basically almost like a celebrity status of academia or actual celebrities, um, when when people of color celebrities reach a certain level, then you kind of notice a pattern, again, going back to that analyst brain, but I'm not the only one who's seen it, um, where people of color get to a certain height and then they're only dating white people. And um, 
there are, there are a lot of conversations that have been had about it. Or, well, maybe it's because there are less people of color at that level in the industry. And, well, whatever the case may be, my this particular friend has clocked it, has taken note of it and said, I am actively not going to date white people for this specific cause. And to the untrained listener, they might be like, well, why is he being so racist? That's not being racist. That's undoing <laughs> the racist system of, you know, and when we say racist, again, don't think of pitchforks and clan hoods. Just think of the fact that there is a group that is in power and gets what it wants when it wants it. And um, and that's, you know, and then leveraging that against minorities. Yeah, yeah. And I'm curious, has your work, you know, on doing this activism, this work in media, has it ever intersected with your dating life? Mm, one time and I met this guy and like, I, I'm such a weird person. So like I met this person and I, to this day, I don't know if it, I think it was, I think it was just a friendly meeting yeah. and I'm sure that he would say it was just a friendly meeting as well, but we met at a bar and had drinks. So like that counts as like a first date. And he um, told me like, we were talking about, we're trying to get to know each other and uh he was like, well, I like to do this, this, and this. I think it's like running and like listen to podcasts. I just started listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. That was him. And then like, of course, being a podcaster, I was like, oh, yeah. like what podcast do you listen to then? And he was like, hold on, I'll open my phone. So I opens his phone and it's like, I think he's also an analyst. So it was like this one like analytical podcast, like one of his industry mm -hmm. And then another one was like RuPaul's podcast or whatever, or someone. Um, and then like one of them was my podcast, like this Cupac Light. <laughs> and so amazing. I just sat there and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go back a little. Like, so like, did who you, told you to listen know? to Cupac Light? Yeah. And then he was like, oh, my therapist told me. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm on that podcast. I'm Jonathan. Oh, he didn't and know. He was like, what? <laughs> he was like, oh my God, I knew your voice sounded familiar. It was just, so that's the only time that like yeah. dating and my work, quote unquote, um, have intersected. He didn't know. He didn't know. I, I, I would think it would be like, you know, I, I don't know with you, maybe it would be different because I've told you like your podcast, you have this very mindful and very slow cadence. I'm sure that like, if I were meeting someone off of somewhere and then they had your voice, I'd be like, are you the guy from yellow glitter? <laughs> no, you know, what's funny. I'm at work and everyone's like, you should have a podcast. Your voice is so soothing. I'm like, uh, Oh yeah, I should definitely. Yeah. <laughs> people are so funny but that is interesting or did he know that that was your podcast and he was trying he to... didn't know <laughs> he, I, he didn't know he's well, trying not, not that to get big. clocked yes. he was like mm. <laughs> i'm not big enough for people to try to like hook me in or like <laughs> yeah be like let me reach out to him mm. i'm you know it's funny though i've seen content creators on the apps though like I'd be walking around the city or something and I'll see like this makeup artist I knew. And I'm like, Oh my God, that's such and such. Oh my gosh. And then I'll hit them up. And like, they they'll hit me back up because they're people of color makeup artists on YouTube. And I'm, and we'll just kiki and talk or whatever. I'm not interested in hooking up like that. Um, because it's just like, I'm coming across as a fan in the app already. So like, so it's interesting. Go. Yeah, it's a it's a small world though. You know, it's uh the people we run across into in the internet space too. You never know when you will run into them in person. I feel like it's it's happened to me so many times, surprisingly. Me too. Um I was walking like I was super obsessed with BuzzFeed's yeah. uh morning show yeah. and it had two hosts yeah, on it yeah, and yeah. like I would I would tweet at them like i was i watched them every morning for like two their first two years and um mega fan you know so they knew who i was like they even had me on the show like in this same exact format as a follower appreciation um and then just one day i was in downtown brooklyn crossing the street and one of the hosts was crossing the street and he saw me first and he stopped me and i was like 
what? No way. And he was like, wow, it's you. <laughs> and I was amazing. like, no, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he had good memory. Good for him. Yeah. Mint said he was really into his work. He's no longer the host. They graduated both of the hosts and they got two new hosts. But um, that was probably, that was one of the many occasions um, that it, it's just funny. It's really funny. Um being a person on the internet, quote unquote, when you're a content creator with a modest following, I accidentally sent a DM to one of my Instagram followers one time. And then like, he was like, this is not who you think it is. And, I, and I'm, you know, we're all just regular people. So I was like, LOL, sorry. And then I was like, so how are you doing today? <laughs> like tr- being awkward, like I'm not gonna just stop talking to you all of a sudden. But someone I follow, <laughs> someone I don't, don't follow, they follow me and yeah. like I have a modest following and then they send me back. They're like, to be honest, I'm sh- super shook right now that you're even talking to me. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> it's not even like that. Like whatever. Yeah, block. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, oh, he was happy sweet. to be in my DM so presence. Sweet. I guess. I don't know. That's really sweet. Oh. Yeah. I, I'm, I have a quick question. If you were to turn back time, if you were to go way back in time and give advice to six-year-old Jonathan on love, what would it be? Oh, that's a hard question. What would it be? I think it would be, oh, I don't know, though, because if we went back to six-year-old Jonathan, we'd be going to like 1989. And um, so... No, the the type of advice that I would give as grown Jonathan to six year old Jonathan, I would say like be who you are, love who you are, um, and don't hide it. But like, I remember being in the seventh grade in like 1996. Like, it still wasn't safe for a gay kid. Like, so like so, it, that's that you know I'm lo- I might be looking too hard into the question mm, by including yeah. the timeline. But if I had to go back to 1989 and tell little young Jonathan, you know, my my current self is like, it wouldn't be the wisest thing to like encourage this kid to just like be, you know, because I've I today I advise people to and people are against this sometimes. But I'm like, no, do what you have to do in order to stay in your parents house. If that is the only source of protection that you have until you can secure an income, it's their rules. Because you know you see kids being kicked out and homeless when they come when they come out right stuff. yeah when they come out yeah so you know you know maybe that would be my maybe that would be my advice it's like know who you are and don't write that stupid newsletter <laughs> like don't be <laughs> don't write that don't publish that newsletter <laughs> like don't be at war with yourself accept who you are and come out on your own time. Right. I think that's a good medium, a happy medium there. Are there any books or resources that have helped you to navigate love? To to circle it back to the main point, which is um, being queer Asian and me being biracial in particular and bringing back up the fact that, you know, like there is a note of anti-blackness there and stuff. The books that have helped me understand. Oh, gosh, I can't think off the top of my head. And they're in the other room. But one of them is... uh, uh, Brown Skin, White Minds by E.J.R. David. And then another book, which I am looking for right now. I don't yeah. post that often, so I can't. Oh, there it is. And then the other one is uh, Brown Boys and Rice Queens, Spellbinding Performance oh. in the Asias. What? what? Okay, what and are they I have both to look about? The yeah, what are they both about? Oh, I've never <laughs> Both heard of them of are about white supremacy in, uh, and the relationship between... Uh, Asians and white people. And so that helps me understand the, uh, you know, the dynamic that keeps me and people who look like me on the outside. Um, And unfortunately, so for me, because I am part of that community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That is fascinating. Is Brown Skin, White Minds, I know it's um, written with, uh, by a Filipino author, was it? Yeah, and it's more about colonization and it's more about the history of the Philippines. But it still it still informs um, many different attributes of quote unquote preference gays. Um, 
and especially those in the Philippines that chase after white people and helps inform me of why the, the world is the way it is. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. I have some rapid fire questions to wrap up. You ready? Okay. Lightning round. Let's First go. First thing that comes to mind. Yes. What do we need more of in love? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can't just say that off the top of my head. What do we need more of in love? Yes. Um, Openness. Openness. Good. <clears throat> what do we need less of in love? Preferences. <laughs> yes. And what is inspiring you lately? Korean cinema. Mm, parasite. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Any last words of wisdom for our listeners? Take what you've heard today and use it to arm yourself to go out in the world and be a better person. That's super cliche, but if you made it this far, then you haven't turned it off because you <laughs> yeah. got pissed off that I dragged you because you have a large uh, Asian fan base. So yes, there you go. Mostly Asian. Yeah. Truth hurts. Oh. But you know, I think it's a, it's, it's difficult, but this work that we do, you know, inquiring within ourselves, it's worth it. We come out the other end with so many insights that we can really use to not only change ourselves, but change the world, you know? Yes. Yeah. And how can our listeners find or reach out to you? I am Jonathan, a.k.a. Blasian FMA. That's B-L-A-S-I-A-N-F as in Frank, M as in Mary, A as in Alpha. On all platforms, Twitter, I prefer Instagram. And um, I am also promoting the fact that I am producing an independent film. Uh, and I want you to keep an eye out for it specifically because it is about a young Asian American performer entering the entertainment industry and how he deals with his own mm. inner white supremacy. Oh, that's amazing. And some of the shots I saw on your social media look amazing. I'm so excited for that. We're really trying to make it look nice and we're going to um, submit it to film festivals and things like that. Cause a, we need representation, queer Asian representation in the media. And so this is my, contribution to that while adding my you know twist and spin and a uh, spice and flavor mm. that is me into this <laughs> yes yes can't wait for that and yeah thank you so much jonathan it was such an amazing time with you thank you for coming on and thank you for having me <laughs> yes thank you so much and that's it for this episode of yellow glitter on love if you want to get in touch with me you can reach out to me via my instagram at stephen wakabayashi and if you enjoyed this please leave a rating or review it takes a few seconds and if you have a few minutes leave me a comment it helps other people find this podcast as well and with that so much love for you and hope your day can be a little bit more mindful <laughs> bye bye <laughs>